0: hide-and-go-seek is one of those iconic games that never gets old, you know. It's been around a long time. I used to play it when I was a kid. used to love playing it, and my kids love playing it, and generations before me love playing it. It's just one of those games that never gets old. You love to play hide-and-go-seek. Anyway, I was playing with my kids the, I don't know, the other week, the other month, and we're playing, and Emma was it. And so she's our 11-year-old, and we're all hiding, and I'm going to tell you my hiding spot right now, okay? So you can't tell them, okay? This is, this is prime information, but it's only for y'all to know. And so I was hiding behind, like, you open a door, and that space between the wall and the door... That's where I was, you know, just standing as still and as straight as I possibly could. And I'm, I'm standing there, and I'm watching Emma, and she finds Bree and Pierce real quick, no problem. And she's looking all over the house, and I can see through the crack this way. I can watch her go up and down the hallways. I can see through the crack this way and watch her go in and out of rooms. But she wasn't finding me. And finally, I didn't want to give my spot away, so at a certain time when I knew she was somewhere else and Bree and Pierce weren't looking, I just snuck out and went somewhere else, someplace where I knew she'd find me then. I did not want my spot to be given up. But you know, she walked by me. It must have been over a dozen times. And she never knew she was missing me. She never knew that I was sitting, standing right there, right by her. She never noticed. You know, this time of year could be a lot like that. You know, we get reminded all the time as we rush from Christmas party to Christmas activity, as we go out buying gifts and looking at lights, one of the constant reminders, a common reminder this time of the year is, hey, don't get so busy that you miss it. Just take some time and remember the reason for the season. Remember the fact that Jesus became man for us. It's it's one of the reasons why uh, Pastor Donnie mentioned it earlier, that we handed out Christmas devotionals last week, so that we wouldn't miss it, so that we would take time just as a family and stop and remember and worship our God and the reason for the season. Because too often we can walk right by and miss it. We can forget why this season is so joyous, so exciting. And you know what? We aren't the only ones. To prove it to you, go ahead and turn with me this morning to Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Matthew 2, verses 1-12. Through 12 We're continuing our Christmas series, Go Tell It, everywhere. And so this uh, Christmas season, we're especially focusing in on just some of the characters of Christmas, some of the characters who responded to this good news of great joy. Last week, we focused in on the shepherds, the dirty, excluded shepherds, and this week, um, we, we, we will look at the wise men, and we will see that now these men are also invited to come and to worship. And it is exciting. Let's go ahead and look at it. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Magi from the east, Gentiles would come to worship this king. Wise men, Magi from the east, Gentiles. Why would they come? Jesus, he is the king of the Jews. They are Gentiles. They're from a far off land, a distant land. They are distant in every way. They are distant by custom, they are distant by race, they are distant by uh, land, They, they are a distant people, distant by religion, and even they come to worship him who they say is the king of the Jews. He's not their king, he seems as if he's a distant king, it seems this way. To fully appreciate this story, just the amazing uh, uh, complexities of this story, you need to understand that the primary audience of Matthew's gospel was a Jewish audience. Matthew, as he writes, he's primarily writing to Jewish people and he's going to spend a lot of time appealing to Old Testament prophecies and Old Testament promises he, he's trying to prove to this Jewish audience that Jesus really is the coming Messiah he's going to spend a great deal of time proving that Jesus is the rightful Davidic King he's from the line of David and so Matthew is proving this and the whole of Matthew's gospel is is setting out the the program and the purpose of this Davidic king, this promised Messiah has come, Jesus Christ. And this gospel is designed to appeal to Jews to get them to respond to the message of Jesus. And really that's part of what makes this section of the story so striking, so amazing, so gripping because you know as we read any narrative any any story you can lose yourself in the story that that's what makes narrative passages of of literature so captivating so intriguing because we begin to identify with the characters we find ourselves in the characters We can read a story and we can say to ourselves, you know, I would have responded just the same way. I would have thought just the same thing. If that were me, I would have done the exact same thing that they did. And we begin to respond that way. And we can look at a story, we can read the story, and we can say, you know, I identify with him. I think I'm a lot like her. And we think that way as we read stories. That's the power of narrative. That's the power of a story. And as we read this section of the Christmas story, oftentimes we can identify with the Magi. We, we, we can relate to the Magi on some levels. At least we would say, I would like to be like the Magi. I mean, that looks fun. They they come from this distant land, and they're probably wearing these nice, big, expensive robes and just bedazzled with all these kinds of jewels, and they're riding on this camel that's probably marching to the beat of the music, the head going this way and that way from side to side. We we can imagine it, you know, carrying these chests of treasures and everything. It sounds fun. It sounds captivating. Oh, we'd like to be a magi. We can find ourselves in... The Magi, but that's us. But for Matthew's readers, for Matthew's primary audience, who he's writing to, a Jewish audience. I mean, just just imagine for a moment. He's appealing to this Jewish audience to identify with, or maybe better said, to have the same response as the wise men, the Magi, the distant, far-off Gentiles. It's interesting. It's it's striking because you know that any Jew does not want to identify with a Gentile, especially a far off, distant Gentile. And we don't really know much about these Magi. You know, most likely they traveled from Persia, uh, Babylon, ancient Babylon, modern day Iraq, Iran. We don't really know. Some have even suggested China. Persia seems to be a better fit. Modern-day Iraq, Iran, it seems more likely. The the term magi, we do know this, it means magician. And Persian magis, we're going to assume it's Persia, Persian magis, they were leading figures in society. These were men who were astrologers. They studied the night's sky. They were diplomats, thought to be wise men, skilled in negotiating and language and words and, and this kind of thing. They were religious men. They were devout men. The, the, the magi of Persia, they, they're not doing any kind of crazy tricks or anything. When you hear the term magician, magi, I don't think David Copperfield. That's not it at all. In, in fact, these Persian persian magi if they are who we suspect maybe they could be they would have been exposed to hebrew scriptures they would have been exposed to the promises of the old testament Uh, as a result of the babylonian captivity where the jews were exiled into babylon some 600 years previous uh, as a result of that jewish learning centers were set up throughout persia and so With these Jewish learning centers, it is likely that the Magi would have heard, have been at least somewhat exposed to the Hebrew uh, scriptures and promises and this type of thing. In in fact, if you go back and you look at the book of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 2, verse 48, it says that the king of Babylon put Daniel in charge of the wise men. Daniel. Daniel. A faithful Jew was at one time, 600 years previous, in charge of. The wise men. So perhaps, just maybe, this sense of expectation and anticipation has been passed down from generation to generation of pagan, Gentile wise men, magi, because they have heard of the promises of Daniel when Daniel led them, Daniel's influence 600 years previous. Because you read through more of the book of Daniel and you see that Daniel prophesied about a coming Messiah a coming Messiah who would die. Daniel prophesied this, and then when the wise men come, one of the gifts that they bring is the gift of myrrh. It's a burial spice. Why would these wise men think to bring a burial spice to a newborn baby king? We don't know how many magi made the trip. We don't know that. It was, uh, if they came from Persia, about a 900 mile trip from Persia to Israel. You know, despite that old Christmas carol, we three kings of Orient are, we really don't know. Western tradition, Western lore, we've just said three. Uh, It it corresponds with the gifts, gold, frankincense, myrrh. That's where we get it. But you should know Eastern tradition, if you lived over on the Far East somewhere, that the tradition over there has always been 12, that there were 12 wise men who came. Scripture doesn't tell us. We don't really know if it was three, if it was 12, if it was some other number. We know it was more than one wise men came. Um, But regardless of the number, it was probably a whole lot more people than just the number. Because wise men, these dignitaries, if they're coming from Persia, they would have assembled a caravan to come with them. That They would have had men who were guards coming with them. Wise men just wouldn't have traveled that type of distance alone. That, that would have been way out of the ordinary. So they would have had attendants. They would have had guards. They would have had cooks for this long journey. And so when this caravan shows up to Jerusalem, it's probably over 20 people, 20 people dressed differently, looking differently, and they ride in. It probably caused a little bit of a scene. This was quite a group that rides into Jerusalem, perhaps on camels, perhaps on donkeys, we don't really know. But one thing we do know is that they were following a star. And even the star is speculative. People have all kinds of theories about the star. Some wonder if perhaps it was a comet. Some wonder if the star was representative of an angel. Some wonder if the star was this great, big, spectacular star that just stood out from all the others in the night sky, that as you look up, wow, it's huge, it's massive. You can't help but follow it. You can imagine, though, that if there was a star so big, so close, that everyone would have been talking about it, it most likely was not a star like that. But I do imagine it was a star. I, I just take scripture at its word. And when it says it was a star, I assume it was a star. And these men studying the night sky and they see this star, they follow it. And you can imagine, though, that if it was a star so big, so close, that everyone would have been talking about it. Throngs of people would have joined the magi's caravan, not for what the star promised, simply because of the star. But these were astrologers constantly studying the night sky, familiar with the night sky. And now the promise was fulfilled, this promise that perhaps they heard from Daniel, that a star will come out of Jacob, a scepter will rise out of Israel. This promise is being fulfilled. And it is strange, isn't it, when you just stop and think that the good news of the Jewish king was recognized by foreigners, It's strange, isn't it, that this message was not heard by priests or rabbis or members of the Sanhedrin. It's strange, too, that the messenger to these wise men was not a priest, not a pastor, not even a person, but a star. A star that hung in the night sky with all the other stars. But you see, good news just has to get out. Good news can't be kept. Good news has to get out. It had to make it to the hillside, to those excluded shepherds who were never allowed to enter the temple. This good news has to get out, and now it has to reach distant Persia, distant Babylon. Good news has to get out. When you have good news, you just can't keep it to yourself. You can't hold it in. God was sending his son for all people, and the good news had to get out. Even creation, a star, would testify to this fact. And so these wise men follow a star to Jerusalem, expecting to find a baby king there. Instead, they don't find the baby king they find, and they meet Herod. Now, you got to know a few things about Herod, okay? Herod is not Jewish. He's, he's the Jewish king. Rome even gives him the title, king of the Jews. But Herod himself is not Jewish. He's an, Edomian, an, an, an Edomite. You could go back and read Obadiah if you want some more information on all that. But he, He's not Jewish. He's not a Jewish king. In in fact, you go back um, six decades previous and Rome was in all kinds of turmoil, and really the whole ancient world at that time, and people were picking their horses, and who they thought was going to emerge as the leader of the day, and so this Herod, Herod the Great, he sided with uh, Mark Antony, Mark Antony and, and and Cleopatra, and they were kind of on one end of the Roman Empire, going up against uh, Octavian on the other end, and this Herod, he thinks that Mark Antony is going to prevail, of course he doesn't, Octavian does, and as he does, this Herod the Great, he's a skilled negotiator, he's a clever politician, and he's able to then align himself with Octavian, and he wins Octavian's approval and everything, and Octavian puts him in charge of Israel. He is the king of the Jews, Herod the Great, and he made this deal, really, with Rome, where he taxed the Israelites heavily and just gave a bunch of the tax money to Rome. And so, it's not that Rome really liked Herod the Great. They just, you know, they had a business transaction here. So, hey, they put up with him. He's bringing in money. This works. And the Israelites, they too, they didn't really like Herod the Great, but Herod did this thing for them. He promoted um, Jews to be the leaders in the, in the temple and all the religious laws. He allowed them to continue to worship the way they wanted, to have the chief priests and the Israelites in the, the way they wanted. And so they tolerated him. They, they, they were used to him. And th- this is kind of the deal that he made. He's a skilled politician. He's able to win people on both sides, even though nobody really cares for him. And he launched massive building programs. I mean, Israel really kind of blossomed during his reign. Defense, defense is, went way up. He fortified the country. Um, but at the same time, Herod was delusional. Okay, he, he was a very sick man. If, if anybody challenged Herod's leadership, watch out, because he was psychotic. Okay, Just a couple stories about him. He had a, a brother-in-law. And uh, his, his brother, he made his brother-in-law to be a chief priest. His brother-in-law was a Jew, and he made him to be a chief priest. And anyway, the people loved his brother-in-law. He was good-looking. He was good with the people. And Herod, one day, he introduced his brother-in-law to ceremony as chief priest here. And, and he got more applause than Herod did. That was a bad career move. Herod invited him over to a pool party, and, well, you know, they just had this competition. Let's see how long you can hold your breath. And, well, his brother-in-law couldn't hold his breath that long, and he just drowned. Okay? He had his, Herod had his favorite wife. He had ten wives. His his favorite one, um, he heard from his sister, was... uh, sleeping around and trying to take out Herod so that she could be in charge of Israel. The rumors were proven false, but Herod had her killed just in case. He would have several of his sons killed. In fact, um, the Roman Caesar, Caesar Augustus, who was Octavian, he said that it would be better to be Herod's pig, safer to be Herod's pig than one of his sons. This is how crazy Herod was. Herod was so worried that when he died that there would be nobody crying at his funeral and so he ordered this decree that when he died noblemen in the area should also be put to death that way people in Israel all of Israel would be mourning when he died. The decree wasn't followed. They didn't put noblemen to death. So instead of crying, there was great rejoicing when Herod died. But this just gives you a little insight into who he was. Now you understand why Herod is so upset when the wise men come. Because they come and they say, we've come to worship him who has been born king of the Jews. And you understand the terror in Herod's heart because he is power hungry. He doesn't want to give up the throne. And now someone is born. He wasn't born king. He made political agreements to assume the role of king. But now someone is born king. There's a rival to the throne. But he's not the only one upset. The the, the Bible says, All Jerusalem is upset. They don't even like Herod. Why would all of Jerusalem be upset? Because they've already backed Herod. They've already got these agreements. They don't like Rome, but they've learned to live with Rome. They don't like Herod, but but they've got this system that, that works because they've got some measure of power, and they want to hold on to that power. You know, Would they have such power in a new administration? If there is a new king, what would happen? Who knows? Sometimes we have this idea that Jerusalem were these God-fearing people, but they have power now. Would this new king grant them such power? There's this philosophy called humanism. It states that creation is centered around humanity, that we are the center of creation, that everything really revolves around us, that what we think, what we feel, what our preferences are, what we decide, that's really what matters. And so we are in control of our own destiny. We we need to take control of the decisions that we make and claim our future because our future can be anything we want it to be. And, you know, you can go to any bookstore, you can go to any library, you can search online, listen to a number of podcasts, and you can read and you can listen for as long as you want to about what you need to do, about how you are the most important person, and here's what you need to do to accomplish your dreams, what you need to do to get ahead, what you need to do to stay on your throne. You know, as I was studying for this uh, Sermon this morning I, I had worked up all this stuff about the the magi and the significance of the gifts that they brought and speculated a little more about the travel and what that would have been like the 900 mile trek at that time and and I was excited to share all that but but as I was studying and I, as I was looking and even knowing that we were going to play this song this morning and sing it together oh come all ye faithful come to Bethlehem it struck me, the faithful ones coming to Bethlehem to worship the king were not the Jews already living in Bethlehem, already living in Israel. The faithful ones coming were distant, far-off Gentiles traveling miles and miles away to get there. And, and then this fear crept in. As much as we like to identify and can see ourselves in the Magi, and, you know, if you're signing up for some Christmas cantata, we say, yeah, I'll play a wise man, no problem. Who's signing up to playing Herod? Who, who, no, nobody wants to be Goliath or Delilah or any, Nobody wants to be a villain. But as I'm reading the Christmas story, I, I was almost wondering and scared of the fact that maybe... Maybe we think we identify with the wise men, but sometimes we can act a whole lot more like Jerusalem. Because we've got our thrones, too. We've got our ideas, too, of the way things ought to go and the way things ought to be, what's comfortable for me, what's good for me, what I like. Maybe you're here this morning and you don't even have a relationship with Jesus and you've heard about him a little bit and you think, man, Jesus is going to come in and he's going to try to take away what's already mine. He's, He's trying to take away what's mine. Jesus didn't come to take what's yours. He came to reclaim what's his. And he's the only rightful king of the throne of my life. He's the only rightful king of the throne of your life. He's the only rightful king of Israel, of any nation He's the only rightful king of the earth. He didn't claim to take what's ours. He came to reclaim what's his. And in doing so, he gives us a better life, because he's a better king. He's a perfect king. We are inconsistent. We make decisions all the time, and it can go this way and then that way, and what we like can change. He never changes. He is consistent. That's why this is good news of great joy and it's for all people, because he wants to be the throne on the throne of everyone's life. But imagine the scene with me for a moment. The magi, the wise men, they they show up and they're loaded down with these expensive, extravagant gifts that they've carried with them for so long. Gifts fit for a king and they show up to Herod and they say, we've come to worship the one born king. We have these gifts for him. Tell us where we may go and worship him. What they're saying to Herod is, you're not him. Can you imagine for a moment how this paranoid, sick, psychotic man must have felt. I mean, he's desperate. He calls the chief priest. He calls the teachers of the law. He calls the religious leaders. He gets them together because he's got to find out where is this man being born? Where is this baby? Who who is this threat to the throne? Where where is my rival? And amazingly, do you read it? The the religious leaders know. They remember the prophecy. He will be born in Bethlehem. The religious leaders know. They don't don't have to say, Herod, hey, Herod, just wait a moment. We'll get together. We'll study the scriptures. We'll come back, and we can see if we can figure it out for you and let you know where he will be born. No, they know. They, they, They quote scripture. They quote the promises. They know. And for them, it's only a six mile journey from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. But they never go. Some suggest that all Jerusalem is disturbed because Herod is disturbed. They say, hey, Herod is crazy. And, you know, if Herod's crazy and he's delusional and he's upset, hey, everybody's upset. Because who knows what he's going to do. And yes, that may be true on some level, but it's more than that. The leaders in Jerusalem, they're upset too because they've got their own thrones. They've got their own power. They're worried about their own way of life. I mean, don't, don't you see it? They know where the Christ child, their long-awaited promise, Messiah, King, was to be born. And yet the ones who go to worship him are not from Palestine, they're from Persia. It's uncircumcised Gentiles who go, not circumcised Jews. It's those who haven't memorized all the promises of God rather than those who had. The distant Gentile Magi, they load up their expensive gifts and they travel over 900 miles to worship the one Born king. The religious leaders would not travel six miles to see him. They quote scripture to Herod. Did, did you catch it? They, they, they quote Micah 5:2. They, they know the prophecy that's fulfilled, they know the promise. And this king has fulfilled it, and they know it, and yet they can't go six miles. The distant will come over 900 miles. You know the verse they quote, Micah 5.2. I want to read it to you from Micah this morning. It says, But you, O Bethlehem of Frotha, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. And that's what they quote To Herod, that's not the whole verse. That's just the first section of the verse. I I assume they know the whole thing. If they can quote that, I think they know the rest. The rest of Micah 5.2 says, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Do you see the promise there? Do you see the prophesy? It's it's a prophecy of a preexistent Messiah king. A king who's come, coming forth is from old, from ancient days. The religious leaders knew the promise. They knew the prophecy that this king found his roots in eternity past. He is the pre-existent Messiah. He would be, as John would write in his gospel, the word made flesh. The ever-present second person of the Trinity would now take on flesh and bones. He would humiliate himself to step out of heaven and to become a baby, to become a man. And knowing all of this, knowing this promise and hearing that it's being fulfilled only six miles away, the religious leaders can't trouble themselves to get off their own throne and make a six-mile trip. But these distant Gentile wise men, they form a caravan. And they come with the most precious, most extravagant, most expensive gifts they could put together. And they travel over 900 miles. You know, we read this story. And we would like to find ourselves in the wise men. But sometimes I fear we can act more like Jerusalem. We can know what the scriptures tell us. We can know the promises of God. We can quote them. We can know how we're supposed to pray for one another, how we're supposed to encourage one another, how we're supposed to serve one another. We can know that, hey, if someone wrongs us, that I'm supposed to go directly to that person and have a conversation with them. We can know that we're supposed to go and make disciples, that we're supposed to be the light of the world. We can know the promises. We can know the commands. But then when it comes right down to it, we can say, well, you know, this is just how, what I was thinking. This is what I was feeling. That seems like a lot of trouble. I think I'd rather just do things my way. We sometimes would rather just stay on the throne of our own life, doing what we think is best. And other times, you know, someone might come up to us, and they might say something like, wow, I was just reading the Christmas story, and have you ever noticed that Herod, or, or that the wise men right, went right up to Herod and told him, that they were looking for the king when Herod is the king. That's amazing. Have you ever noticed that? And we might say, oh yeah, you're just now seeing that? Yeah, yeah, I, I, I've noticed that. I've seen that before. And see, sometimes we can lose the wonder. We can lose the awe of whose we are. We can throw cold water on the excitement of a newer believer because, say, we, we've already heard that before. We've seen that before. We know that. Studies show that people who most frequently invite friends to church are those who most recently join a church. But as the years go by, sometimes the invites start to fade because we just get comfortable just doing our thing. Studies show that those most likely to share Jesus with people are those who have just recently begun a relationship with Jesus themselves. Matthew is trying to get unbelieving Israel to have the same response to Jesus as the Gentile Magi. And yet the threat today may be that we think we're the Magi, but we act more like Jerusalem. This week, the staff and I, we, we, we just listened to some information about reaching the unchurched and, and we just heard some things. Did you know, for instance, that 80% of unchurched people, people who do not attend church, would attend church if you invited them and walked through the door with them? If you just said, hey, you know, I'll meet you at 7-Eleven, you can follow me into church and when we get there, you know, you can come on in with me and we'll find a seat and we'll sit together, would you come? More than four out of five would say, yes, I'll do that. Studies also show that less than 20% of regular church attenders will invite someone to church. Less than 20%. But even more strikingly, only about 2% will invite an unchurched person to church in a given year. Only about 2%. We think we're the wise men. But my fear is that sometimes we act more like Jerusalem. Why? Because somewhere along the line, the joy begins to fade. The sense of wonder starts to dissipate. Things are not as exciting as they used to be. We get into our routines. We do our own things when slowly but surely we inch back up on the throne, just doing things our way. Church becomes more of something we do, but not really who we are. You see, the wonder of the wise men, you can't miss it, They go out with this exuberating joy as the star appears again. They meet with Herod, and they follow the star to the place where the child is. And it is in that verse, right, where they follow the star to the place, to the house where the child is, that really messes up our whole nativity scene. Because it tells us that they find a child. That the word could be translated toddler. He's not a baby anymore. And then it says that they find him in the house. He's not in a manger in a cave anymore. Now he's moved. He's a toddler in a house. He's not there. They're, the, the Magi, they're not there with the shepherds. It's later. It's sometime later. Maybe a year or so has passed before the wise men arrive. So some of you, you're going to have to go home and you're going to have to readjust your nativity scene a little bit. You're going to have to take your wise men that are in the family room. You're going to have to move them off to the kitchen. And then you're going to have to go to the store, and you're going to need to buy about 20 more figurines, just so you make sure you've got a caravan there. And as people visit your house this year, you'll have quite a conversation starter as you get to explain what's going on with your nativity scene. But the Magi come, and they worship. And that word for worship there... It, It's this great word. In the English, it barely just scratches the surface of it. What you see is is them worshiping a god, a deity. It's it's not just some foreign dignitaries coming to pay their respects to this new king. That's not it at all. They are bowing down and worshiping this toddler like he's God. They believe he's God. This is the type of worship that they're expressing, that they're offering. This is awe. They bow down. They offer to him the best gifts they have, expensive gifts, gifts that that Joseph probably had to sell in order to make it to Egypt and then travel back. And I imagine that these wise men, as they left that night... You know, they had traveled for a long time and they went there with just this overwhelming joy. And as they left the house that night, as they had beheld this king, I imagine they couldn't even sleep, that they just talked amongst themselves and, and, and whispered their stories back and forth of what they witnessed as they beheld this king, because they somehow know, they somehow realize that he's not simply a Jewish king, that he is the king of kings, that he is the the Lord of lords, it seems that they somehow on some level understand it. It is good news of great joy for all people, not just Jews, for Gentiles too, not just for the clean, it's for the dirty, it's for the distant, it's for everyone. And we all know this. Today we know this, but sometimes we can be like Jerusalem. Because we can lose the wonder of it all. We can lose the joy, the amazement, the excitement of it all. I want to give you a few tips this morning just to help you recapture that wonder, to keep that wonder in your relationship alive, just kind of by looking at the wise men and and how they responded. But first, be a continual worshiper. Be a continual worshiper. Study the scriptures, pray, sing. Don't don't let a day go by that you haven't spent time just beholding your king. Just time with Jesus, beholding his majesty. Let his word instruct you and challenge you and encourage you and correct you and rebuke you. All these things, and by all means, apply. Do what it tells you to do. Do what God has called you to do. He called the wise men to make this... Long trek that he called them by a star and they respond and they follow you, follow the star. And he's called us to go to make disciples. He's called men to love their wives. He's called children to obey parents. He's called us to go and to share the good news to be the light. So do that. Do do what God has called us to do. You know, I've never had anyone come back to me and say, you know. I know that God says that we should go and share the gospel, so I tried, and, you know, I just really regret doing that. I've never had anyone come and tell me, you know, I I know that I'm supposed to serve and use my spiritual gifts to be a benefit to the body of Christ, but I tried doing that, and, you know, that's just really not for me. I've never had anyone say that to me, but what I have had is people come to me with their eyes as big as saucers and with smiles that you could button behind their ears, and them come with amazement and say, Wow, I shared the gospel and it was amazing. I served and I did something I never thought I could do. I never imagined that God could use me to do that. This is incredible. To God, it calls us not simply to do hard things for him. He's called us to do hard things with him. This is the promise of scripture, that you don't have to do it on your own. Matthew's gospel, it it begins with, hey, Emmanuel, God is with us. The last promise of Jesus is, and behold, I will be with you always. I'm not going anywhere. He's an ever-present God who empowers us through the third person of the Trinity so that we don't have to do it alone, that we get to do it with him. And then when we do things we never dreamt we could do because we couldn't on our own, wonder returns, this awe returns because we never thought we could do that. And then we see God working in our lives, and there's excitement, and there's wonder, and there's awe, and there's joy. And lastly, to recapture the wonder a little bit, offer your best. The the wise men come and they give these extravagant gifts, the best of what they could bring. I don't know what God has called you to do, where he's called you to serve. You know, if he's called you to serve with youth, be the best youth leader you can possibly be with kids. Be the best kids leader you can possibly be, greeter, whatever. Do the best you possibly can as he's called you to be a light to our community. Be the best light you can possibly be, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And all of that happens because we're just dependent upon him And it's this constant cycle. God empowers, and we are faithful. God empowers, and we are faithful. God empowers, and we are faithful. And as a result, wonder, joy, awe, because he is on the throne, not us. And he's a better king, and he gives a better life. The the first readers of Matthew's gospel were Jews, And as they read Matthew chapter 2, this section of the Christmas story, there was nothing about a Gentile magi that they would really want to respond to and to relate to. They they would not want to be taught by the example of Gentile wise men. And as we read Matthew chapter 2, all these centuries later, we think, oh, we're not like Jerusalem. My fear is we both might be wrong. Don't, don't walk around this life just like everything's normal. Don't, don't just go through the motions. Don't just get in your routines of, hey, this is just what I do. This is just the way God made me. No, no, sin may have corrupted that. God has made you to be a light. He's instructed you to act in certain ways, to do certain ways, to do certain things, and it's always for your good because he's a good, perfect king. He gives a better life. But if you just go through life like everything's the same and this is just what I do and this is just my routine, you might walk right past what really matters, might be right next to you, and you never really know it. Instead, take an impossible journey. Go, tell the dirty, tell the distant, tell someone the good news that the Savior has come because it is good news of great joy for all people. So recapture the wonder of it all. This morning as we pray, I know some of you may have people on your hearts this Christmas season who you know that more than any kind of gift, what they really need is Jesus. And so as we pray this morning, you know, you can come up front and pray, I'll be praying up here, but uh, let's, let's pray together, especially for those friends, those family, those neighbors, those coworkers, who need Jesus more than they need their next breath. Heavenly Father, you are a good king, a perfect king. You offer a better life than than the life we would give ourselves. And yet, God, uh, forgive us for those times when we push you off the throne just so that we can climb on there ourselves. Forgive us for when we care more about what's comfortable for us, when we care more about our routines. Forgive us for when we lose the wonder, the excitement, the joy Of being yours. So, God, this Christmas season, help us to go with joy, with excitement, with wonder, empowered by your Holy Spirit, to go tell it, to tell this good news of great joy that we've experienced. That help help us never to grow tired of that, never to grow weary of that. It is not a burden, it is the most amazing privilege we'll ever be given. So, God, now we think of friends, we think of families, we think of neighbors, coworkers who just desperately need you. God, use us to be those messengers to share this good news of great joy. Do this by the power of your Holy Spirit and through the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ, whom we love.